At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. An old idea is making new headlines as a promising treatment for COVID-19. Plus, helping to clear up confusion about coronavirus tests on this episode of Baptist Health Talk. Hello, Baptist Health Talk podcast listeners. This is your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco, and I'd like to welcome you to another special edition of our show focused on the novel coronavirus. One of the things that makes COVID-19 such a serious threat is that there are no widely tested and approved medications available to treat it. Across the world, the race is on to find safe and effective treatments. Here at Baptist Health, researchers have been finding success in trials of innovative therapies, one of which involves using the antibody-rich plasma of people who have recovered from COVID-19 to boost the immune response of critically ill patients. It's called convalescent plasma therapy. It's not a new form of treatment. It's been used in the past to treat other viral outbreaks, such as Ebola, SARS, and even influenza. But it has been used in the U.S. for many years, and its effectiveness has not been shown scientifically in the past for other disease states. So what's it about? How is it being used during our current COVID-19 pandemic? Baptist Health South Florida is one of the first healthcare institutions in Florida to use convalescent plasma therapy for its COVID-19 patients. And to tell us more about the convalescent plasma therapy and BHSF's participation in clinical trials is my guest, Dr. Samar Fami, Chief Medical Officer at Boca Raton Regional Hospital. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fami. Thank you, Dr. Falco. Appreciate it. Um, so, Sam, um, we, we mentioned a, quite a few words there. Um, I do want to get to the convalescent plasma therapy and specifically Baptist's role in the experimental trials, which is quite exciting. But for the listener's purpose, let's talk a little bit about what is plasma. We get this quite a bit. We talk about donations of blood cells and plasma. Talk a little bit about just what is plasma and, um, and what its purpose is in our body. Sure. So, um, you know, the term convalescent plasma sounds pretty complicated, but when you break it down into simpler terms, uh, there's definitions for each that make it quite simple. So the the word convalescent uh, comes from convalescence, which is the period after recovery from a disease. When you're recovering, you're in the convalescent period. And the word plasma implies the blood that we can take from somebody after it's spun down you take all the you know the red blood cells and the white blood cells out of it and you leave just the liquid behind that liquid that's left behind is plasma and that's rich in antibodies and other proteins that are floating around in the blood and and, and, and typically those those antibodies are generated uh, from being exposed to a disease an illness uh, an antigen we call it that can help that, that the body can target and produce antibodies that are specific for it. So that, that's, uh, that's convalescent plasma. So how, how is it obtained? How do we get convalescent plasma for our clinical trials? So convalescent plasma, uh, like you mentioned in, in, in the introduction, has been used for over 100 years. You know, the first documented use of it was uh, back in the Spanish flu back in 1917. And there's, if you, uh, if you ever Google it, you'll find articles from, from back in that era uh, by Dr. McGuire and others showing that they've tried taking plasma from some patients that recovered from Spanish flu and giving it to other patients. And even in that setting, they were noticing some promising results from it. Um, and, and like you mentioned, with H5N1 uh, or, or the, the Spanish flu, um, Spanish flu pneumonia. Excuse me, I'll have to do that one over again. <laughs> but, but, but as you mentioned before, the H5N1 
what the, another flu virus that was around was also used, uh, used convalescent plasma heavily. And H1N1 was the same way. These are all different types of flus. And, we, and we've, uh, in the medical community, have used convalescent plasma when we had no other treatments to try. Um, so how does it obtain? It's usually a patient who had an infection, recovered from that infection, and they have the antibodies in their blood. They can go and, and, and either donate blood at a blood bank, or they get a, a process called apheresis, where they can, instead of donating the whole blood, we're able to just extract the plasma and leave the rest of the blood products behind in their body. Either way, we can pull some of that plasma out, we can test it for all the proper pathogens, and then give it to a patient that's currently suffering from that disease. That's, that's uh, it's good to know. So it really is a blood donation, the same type of processes as you'd be donating platelets or blood products. Um, so for the donor, it's not an intensely painful or, diff or difficult process. Now it's not intensely uh, painful or difficult, but uh, I'll tell you when, when you're donating whole blood, it is a shorter process than if you're donating through an apheresis. So if you're donating whole blood, it might take a half hour and it's, uh, it's one needle where they could take the blood from you. But when you're donating plasma, you can do it through whole blood, but we only get one unit of plasma as a product of that. If you end up going through this apheresis process, we're able to get two or three units of plasma from a donor, which is much more beneficial to, to more patients that are, that are ill with the disease. So we still recommend the, the longer process, although it's not much more difficult, it is longer. It is. I, I donate platelets regularly, so it is a little longer, but it's certainly not painful, listeners. So um, let's go back to now um, uh, the convalescent plasma trial. Um, can you describe the trial um, um, that we're part of in, in Baptist Health? And, um, and also, it should be said, this is, um, this is uh, uh, led by Mayo Clinic. So we have a relationship with Mayo Clinic in the trial as well. Is that right? That, that, that's correct. So initially, when we first started using plasma, we were one of the first health systems in, in Florida to start using this on a, on a broad scale. And um, the FDA has criteria for which patients would be eligible to receive plasma when they're infected with, uh, with the novel coronavirus, with COVID-19 disease. Um, the FDA's criteria as long as it's followed, they allow us to apply for an emergency investigational drug number through them and be able to get a consent to use this treatment, even outside the setting of a clinical trial on many of our patients. And we did that. We did that with about 50 or 60 patients to start until we were able to join this larger Mayo Clinic, what we call an expanded access protocol. And that allows us to join a bigger group with an established protocol, streamline the process, and get plasma to our patients even quicker. And in clinical trials, the more patients who are participating in the trial, the quicker and uh, the more valuable will be our data, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, Mayo Clinic to date has, uh, has transfused more than 3,000 units of plasma to patients across the nation. So just to have that wealth of information of those outcomes, what happened to these people after they received plasma? Uh, that was exciting for us to, to be a part of and, and to include our patients in those populations to ensure that if the next virus rolls around, we have some sufficient data to say with, with, uh, you know, with confidence that, yes, this treatment will help our patients. Um, and, and, and as you mentioned before, we, don't, we haven't had clear scientific evidence in the past. It's been promising, and there's been lots of promising results with the multiple viruses, but there's never been that one solid trial that's sort of randomized and, and we get people enrolled in either getting the, the, the medicine or not the med or placebo and try to figure out whether it works or not. I think this, uh, this Mayo trial is a first step towards that. Thank you. To clarify the comment in my introduction, right, it wasn't that these have been shown not to be effective. 
We just have never really studied them in any kind of way to determine if they're truly effective. What, um, what, what can you say um, about our experiences here and your personal experiences leading um, um, these trials for, for Baptist Health South Florida? What, any, any anecdotal experiences you're seeing or any trends in the data that we're able to report? You know, it's, it's a bit early to tell. We are going through our data right now to be able to, to determine whether, whether giving plasma to patients has, has helped them either stay on the ventilator less days or be in the ICU less number of days or hospitalized less number of days. And really, we're the, the, the outcome that everybody's worried about is can it help people survive? And can, can those folks who are progressing towards a really bad outcome and possibly not make it, can they make it if we give them convalescent plasma? That's kind of difficult to tell unless you do a controlled trial. Um, and, and what we were doing in the beginning is really trying to help as many people as possible. So we were giving the plasma without a controlled trial just to get the treatment to the patients that need it. Um, anecdotally, I think the results look promising. I think there's, uh, you know, we're following several blood, um, you know, blood tests. Uh, we call them inflammatory markers. They're just a marker of how inflamed your, your, your immune system is in response to disease. And preliminary results show that there's less inflammation, there's, uh, that the body is responding well to getting convalescent plasma. Uh, but one of the areas that has also been a hurdle is that we're not sure how much antibody is present in that plasma. So it's hard anecdotally without doing those tests before giving the plasma to say, the, uh, to say how effective the treatment is. And only over the last couple of weeks have we been able to get a true measure of these neutralizing antibodies, they're called, or how much antibody load are we really giving the patient that needs it. Some, some donors have a lot of antibodies and some have a lot less. And we weren't really testing for that routinely as a nation in the beginning. And only over the last couple of weeks have we started doing so. So it's still a work in progress. And again, we're optimistic that we might have a therapy to help patients, but still in clinical trial capacity. What, what about safety, though? That might be something to consider. Are we seeing any trends in risk of, uh, to the patients we gave it to, as you said, initially for kind of compassionate use and now in the clinical trials? Is there anything popping up in terms of danger of using this therapy? No, it seems to be extremely safe. Um, as long as the blood products are matched from the donor to the recipient and you have the same blood type or a compatible blood type, um, then no, we have not seen any unexpected complications. And, uh, and we've treated over 70 patients to date with wow. no, ex no unexpected complications from, from any of the convalescent plasma treatments, which really gives us a little bit more motivation to keep doing it, right? If there's even a small chance that this is helping folks and helping people recover, which we're encouraged based on the preliminary numbers that it is, and there's very little risk or, or adverse events that they're called or you know, side effects of giving this, this treatment, then why not try it? Why not give it to people and see if it'll work for them? And what we've seen is something really exciting is that usually when you have a coronavirus infection, a lot of times you see it in a cluster. So either uh, multiple people in a family or multiple friends that were around each other would, would get infected. Um, and what we're seeing is so many family and friends have really stepped forward to try to be donors when they figure when they find out that a loved one is in uh, is in trouble with coronavirus or is in the ICU or is not doing well. We've seen so much, um, so much of that of of that uh, spirit, the desire and the mm -hmm. spirit. Yeah, the desire to to want to help each other and 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 the, the donations have been the donation hotline that we set up has been ringing off the hook. It's unbelievable how many people want to help. So, so, so are we 
still looking for donors? Would we want our listeners to inquire to participate as donors? I mean, I guess they had to be tested positive. So they had to be, you know, at some place, uh, you know, and, and I guess that's a limiting factor, but are we struggling to get donors or we're in pretty good shape in identifying people who can donate? You know, initially, in, uh, going back to March, when this disease uh, was fairly new to South Florida, we were struggling to get donors because not too many people were infected with COVID-19 and, and were eligible. As time has gone on over the last two months, we've gotten a lot more donors. In fact, we used to run donation processing five days a week. We're down to one day a week now because we have sufficient quantities and there's nobody in our system that is waiting for plasma that hasn't been able to receive it. And to help with that too is our local blood banks. Uh, one Blood, our partner in this that's been working with us, uh, has been able to catch up a bit more over the last two weeks and general donations that are going straight to the blood bank are being processed. And occasionally now when we enter an order, we find plasma available through our blood bank partner without having to recruit donors ourselves. So it seems like the, 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 the donation um, has caught up a bit to the demand. So on the one hand, that's not great because it means there's a lot of people who've had COVID-19 who are able to donate. On the other hand, at least trying to um, make something positive from that experience to be able to have these people donate for the potential benefit in the convalescent plasma trial is 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 good news. <laughs> so yeah, um, no, I, 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 absolutely both ways. And uh, <laughs> and listen, you know the donors. We're still recruiting donors, but uh, through the Baptist system, if there's a designated donor, as in if if it's a donor that's specifically going to one of our patients, we're still you know encouraging them to come in. We'll do the processing on our end in our hospitals and get that plasma to the patients that need it. But if we don't have a patient that currently is in need, we're sending those donors over to one blood to donate to them directly. So it can be applied to a general pool of donations and any patient in South Florida can receive it. That's the collaborative efforts that we participate in. Um, well, again, I really appreciate your expertise and your leadership in, in this in, in, in worthwhile and, and important program. Um, with a few minutes um, left in the podcast, if we could switch gears for a little bit and we keep talking about um, antibodies, antigens, let's, let's talk a little bit about testing. Um, I know I and others are constantly getting questions from people regarding the different kinds of tests and should they get them. And certainly, you know, the perspective of your role as a chief medical officer of, you know, an extremely large hospital within a large system um, will be worthwhile. But can you tell the difference, can you tell us the difference between um, viral testing, antigen testing, antibody testing? So at least when our listeners hear about testing in a newspaper article, in a conversation, they can at least identify what aspect we're talking about in this testing process. Yeah, and I think uh, the, the most listeners will hear about those two types of tests first, you know, the antibody test and the PCR the test, they call it, or the viral test. That viral test is the one that... And let me, is, let me interrupt. The, most, the PCR is the viral test, as you just said. I just yes. Sure people see that. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly it. The PCR is the viral test. And what you're trying to do with that PCR or viral test is you're trying to take a sample from the back of somebody's nose. Um, all the way back to the throat. It's really quite deep. The nasopharynx is called, but it's also in the, at the beginning of the throat behind the nose. And if you swab that area and there's virus there, we're able to put it in a machine, re replicate that virus multiple times so we're able to detect it. And then it tells us the virus actually exists in that area that you swabbed. So that's the most common one that people have been receiving, and that's the one that we started with. And you hear a lot of the about the machines that are running it, like the Abbott device that can give us one a really rapid result is being commonly used. Um, you know, we, the experiences with that test first, it, it's it's been 
it's been a great help having those tests available to us. And it took a while to have those available to us. In the beginning, we didn't have as easy access to those as we would have liked. And we had multiple patients waiting for, a, for, for multiple days, waiting for a test to be uh, resulted. But over time, we've been able to catch up. And, uh, and, and even within my hospital, we're, we're able to perform the test in-house and result it pretty quickly. Um, the accuracy of those results has of those tests has come under fire a little bit, but in our experience, if you're not sure about the result, or if you're uh, if, it, if there's a doctor suspicious that their patient has coronavirus and the test doesn't come back with the result that you expect, typically running it one more time can improve that accuracy. So multiple results, if it's within 24 hours, running two tests, that usually gives us a valid enough result that we can rely on it and we can say, you know, with, with fair certainty whether somebody has it or not. So that's that the viral PCR test, and we're you know we're continuing to do those, of course, for diagnosis and treatment of patients. Now, on the other side, and as it relates to the plasma, is the antibody tests. If if I'm able to draw a blood sample from somebody and detect that they have antibodies to the coronavirus, this novel coronavirus, then I know they've previously been infected. Now I can't tell if they still have it or don't, but I can tell based on certain antibodies that they've been previously exposed to that virus. Um, and typically when the human body is exposed to one of these viruses, you produce antibodies. And th those are the ones we're able to detect. So the active virus, the viral test, the swab behind the nose, we've been told that sometimes people can test negative, maybe because the, the swab didn't get all the way back. There might be some lack of reliability to the tests. Do we think, or I should better say, do you think, um, we'll have advancements in the testing where we might be able to detect active infection and active virus not with the swab in the back of the nose, would it be maybe something, a spit for saliva or something? Where, where is technology moving in that area? Yeah, that's the, that's the hope is that th that test with the, that swab in the back of the nose is extremely uncomfortable for patients. And it can cause what we call aerosolization or some little tiny particles of virus to float in the air and, and be inhaled by somebody else in the area. So it could create a danger for others. Uh, so that's why we're trying to move away from that nasal swab test and go towards this spit test or saliva testing. Um, if we do go that route, one of the one of the routes of being investigated is what's called antigen testing. This antigen testing is you're really putting in a, that, that spit in a machine that tells you um, whether there's proteins on there that uh, that that are produced by the coronavirus, and those antigens are what the body targets to make antibodies. So it's a, it can get you know a bit confusing, but the spit test is one of the ways that we're looking at to detecting whether somebody has an active infection, just like that nasal, nasal swab would tell you if somebody has an active infection. And that's different than the antibody, which tells you about previous exposure. So our holy grail for testing would be, I can spit in something and within a few minutes know if I'm sick. And if I'm sick, you know, I can go home, I can quarantine, we can take care of people differently. Wouldn't that be, uh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. And that's really what we're looking for is something where, where people can test themselves at home. Sure. We know the key to reopening society and making sure everybody can get back to work and school safely is if we can test, test, test. We need to test as many people as possible. We need to trace those contacts of people that have the infection and make sure that we, we isolate those folks so the infection doesn't spread further. And the key is easy testing. If, uh, if we can develop a reliable uh, antigen test through saliva, through spit, that can, that can give us a result and help us quickly identify people who are infected, that would take us a long way in preventing this disease. Um, so um, a quick question now on the, on the antibody testing. Um, 
if people have active disease, you get the viral test. We just talked about the PCR and hopefully a different technology down the road. The antibody testing is for people to determine if they've had the infection, correct? Yeah, and the antibodies is what your body produces in response to an infection. So yes, if it's somebody that's several weeks out or maybe even several months out, um, you can check their blood and if they have these antibodies, you can tell that they've been exposed to the virus in the past. Now there's two types of antibodies. One of them that tells you where if you were recently infected and one tells you whether you were infected a bit longer ago and both of them can be detected with some of the antibody tests that we have on the market today. So those are, uh, are becoming much more commonly used to determine whether somebody had the coronavirus infection and didn't know it because there was a lot of asymptomatic people out there that had the disease or it's being used for plasma donations for those who never tested positive because in the beginning we were telling people to just go home and quarantine unless you feel short of breath then you would present the hospital for testing that's when testing supplies were a bit limited some of those folks are eligible plasma donors and we can detect them by doing an antibody test and if they have those antibodies they other people may benefit from their plasma so other people may benefit from plasma, but we're not ready to say you're immune. Don't worry about it. You can you can be exposed to people who have the virus because you have antibodies. We're not ready to say that with any um, high level of confidence. Okay. You know, if we're looking at the examples from other viruses that have presented in the past, we can say with a moderate level of confidence that once you have an infection with this type of virus, you should have some level of immunity to it. But there has not been any scientific studies to d- clearly demonstrate that you are immune to COVID-19 once you've been infected once. But I think there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the sentiment in the medical community is that that should be the case, but we just haven't proven it yet. So that might help for healthcare workers at risk. If we can get a pool of people who are immune, we might feel more comfortable having them take care of people who are sick so they won't then get subsequently infected. What about to that end? I'm, and I'm almost done with my question, Sam, and I'll let you off the hook. Um, what about, you know, the, the false results we can get with antibody testing? What's the likelihood and is this pers- persistent limitation if we test someone and they test that they have antibodies, but they really don't, um, is that at all possible such that we might be telling someone you're immune and you're not? You know, with the right antibody test, it should be less likely to do that, but there's always a risk because coronavirus is a family of viruses. And this family of viruses are, they have some similar features. Um, so there is a risk that of, of one of the more common types of coronaviruses that were here way before COVID-19 causing just a simple cold or a simple uh, you know, cough that you would get over. Um, it, it, there's a chance that some of our antibody testing may pick up some of those more benign coronaviruses and give us a positive result. And I think that's why as a medical community, we're hesitant to say that if you have this antibody, yes, you're safe and yes, you're immune. Even the World Health Organization came out several weeks ago against this concept of immunity passports that people can get if they test positive for the antibody. And that's because, that's because there's a degree of, of, of cross-reactivity between these coronaviruses that we're still not clear about yet. So until we're sure about that, we don't want to tell somebody they're immune and expose them to any kind of harm. So scientifically, if someone has the antibody test because they feel they may have had an infection, and it, and it should be positive if, they've had the, if, if they have been exposed, and the test scientifically should give them a level of immunity, we just haven't felt able to establish that with certainty just yet. 
but hopefully we'll be moving in that direction to be able to have some, uh, to give some recommendations based on that. Um, uh, and going back to the viral testing, again, my last question, should an asymptomatic person who's been quarantining as much as they can or staying at home as much as they can, do they just say, I'm curious, let me get the viral tests because it's available or would not, not be the person that we'd really want to be um, I'm using the tests on yet? Again, down the road, you have a box in your house, you can test it regularly, but right now, would that be the person that we're looking to get tested? You know, like you said, Jonathan, down the road, ultimately, that's that's what we're hoping we're able to do is, is to have a test at home that tells you whether you're infected or not. At this point in time, though, I would not recommend that somebody get tested for with this nasal swab unless they show symptoms. If you're showing symptoms of a fever or a cough or, or, or a sore throat or or, or difficulty breathing, of course, that's somebody where we highly recommend that you go and you talk to your healthcare provider and you get tested immediately to make sure it's not COVID-19. But if you don't have symptoms, the more beneficial test for you, uh, if you have, if you think you may have been exposed, is to get the antibody test. And that antibody test will tell you, have you been exposed in the past or not? Uh, because you don't really need immediate treatment for it. Um, I, I think that would be the, the better test to, to, to do if you don't, if you don't have symptoms. And where can one get the antibody test? So the antibody test is becoming much more available now. In fact, at Boca Regional Hospital, we're offering it for as a, as an outpatient test. You can come into the blood uh, into our lab and get your blood drawn. If your doctor writes an order for it, and you'll have those results within two days. That's great. That's great. And maybe for our program notes, we'll have a couple of links where people can get the testing if uh, uh, with a doctor order if it's appropriate. Um, any final comments? Any final thoughts, uh, Sam? You've been uh, you know a very uh, helpful guest. An informative guest, uh, both in terms of convalescent plasma, which is something that people may have heard about, but certainly they're experts in now, and uh, the differences between the, the testing out there and its benefits and its uh, potential, as well as some of its uh, present limitations. Anything you'd like to add? You know, as a, as a final comment, the last uh, two to three months have been a really trying time for the medical community and, and the nation as a whole. And um, watching the teams involved in these, uh, in these projects, whether the convalescent plasma or the teams that were in charge of testing or supplying our staff with personal protective equipment, PPE, come together, it's been, it's been a joy to be a part of it. And, and, to, and to know that, we're, that all these efforts are focused on helping our community and our, and our patients get better. And a tremendous amount of progress in a very short amount of time when you consider from March until now that the progress that we've made. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really great to be a part of a community like this that steps forward and comes together. And the number of donors that we have for plasma is just one example of the people that had that stepped forward to help others. It was just really encouraging to be a part of that and, and to see that in our community. Well, I thank you. you. You have been, you are, and you will be an important part of our, our leadership team in Baptist Health South Florida. And it really has been inspirational to see the incredible work on very short notice and under very trying circumstances uh, to be able to keep our community safe as well as um, educate our, our, our staff and our, our community as well. So um, thanks again, Sam. And thank you to our Baptist Health Talk uh, podcast listeners. Uh, as always, any ideas? Any comments, any thoughts on future topics, please email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. Stay safe, folks, and stay home. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.